CD3 The boat didn't glide. It insinuated itself through the water, dancing across the waves on the tips of the twelve oars, spreading like an oil slick, gliding like a bird. It was matte black and shaped like a shark. There was no drummer to beat the rhythm. The boat didn't want the weight. Anyway, he'd have needed the full kit, including snares. Tepic sat between the lines of silent rowers in the narrow gully that was the cargo hold. Better not to speculate what cargoes. The boat looked designed to move very small quantities of things very quickly and without anyone noticing, and he doubted whether even the Smugglers' Guild was aware of its existence. Commerce was more interesting than he thought. They found the delta with suspicious ease. How many times had this whispering shadow slipped up the river, he wondered. And above the exotic smells from the mysterious former cargo, he could detect the sense of home. Crocodile dung, reed pollen, water lily blossoms, lack of plumbing, the rank of lions and reek of hippos. The leading oarsman tapped him gently on the shoulder and motioned him up, steadied him as he stepped overboard into a few feet of water. By the time he'd waded ashore, the boat had turned and was a mere suspicion of a shadow downstream. Because he was naturally curious, Tepic wondered where it would lie up during the day, since it had the look about it of a boat designed to travel only under the cover of darkness, and decided that it had probably lurked somewhere in the high reed marshes on the delta. And because he was now a king, he made a mental note to have the marshes patrolled periodically from now on. A king should know things. He stopped, ankle-deep in river ooze. He had known everything. Arthur had rambled on vaguely about seagulls and rivers and loaves of bread sprouting, which suggested he'd drunk too much. All Tepic could remember was waking up with a terrible sense of loss, as his memory failed to hold and leaked away its new treasures. It was like the tremendous insights that come in dreams and vanish on waking. He'd known everything, but as soon as he tried to remember what it was, it poured out of his head as from a leaky bucket. But it had left him with a new sensation. Before, his life had been ambling along, bent by circumstance. Now, it was clicking along on bright rails. Perhaps he hadn't got it in him to be an assassin, but he knew he could be a king. His feet found solid ground. The boat had dropped him off a little way downstream of the palace, and blue in the moonlight the pyramid flares on the far bank were filling the night with their familiar glow. The abodes of the happy dead came in all sizes, although not, of course, in all shapes. They clustered thickly nearer the city, as though the dead like company, and even the oldest ones were all complete. No one had borrowed any of the stones to build houses or make roads. Tepic felt obscurely proud of that. No one had unsealed the doors and wandered around inside to see if the dead had any old treasures they weren't using any more, and every day, without fail, food was left in the little antechambers. The commissaries of the dead occupied a large part of the palace. Sometimes the food went, sometimes it didn't. The priests, however, were very clear on this point. Regardless of whether the food was consumed or not, it had been eaten by the dead. Presumably they enjoyed it, they never complained or came back for seconds. Look after the dead, said the priests, and the dead would look after you. After all, they were in the majority. Tepic pushed aside the reeds. He straightened his clothing, brushed some mud off his sleeve, and set off for the palace. Ahead of him, dark against the flare light, stood the great statue of Kuft. Seven thousand years ago, Kuft had led his people out of... Tepic couldn't remember, but somewhere where they hadn't liked being, probably, and for thoroughly good reasons. It was at times like this he wished he knew more history, and had prayed in the desert, and the gods of the place had shown him the old kingdom, and he had entered, yea, and taken possession thereof, and it should ever be the dwelling place of his seed. Something like that, anyway. They were probably more yeas and a few verilies, with added milk and honey, but the sight of that great patriarchal face, that outstretched arm, that chin you could crack stones on, bold in the flare-light, told him what he already knew. He was home, and he was never going to leave again. The sun began to rise. The greatest mathematician alive on the disk, and in fact the last one in the old kingdom, stretched out in his stall and counted the pieces of straw in his bedding. Then he estimated the number of nails in the wall. Then he spent a few minutes proving that an automorphic resonance field has a semi-infinite number of irresolute prime ideals, 
After that, in order to pass the time, he ate his breakfast again. Book Two The Book of the Dead Two weeks went past. Ritual and ceremony in their due times kept the world under the sky and the stars in their courses. It was astonishing what ritual and ceremony could do. The new king examined himself in the mirror and frowned. "'What's it made of?' he said. "'It's rather foggy.' "'Bronze, sire, polished bronze,' said Dios, handing him the flail of mercy. "'In Ankh-Morpork we had glass mirrors with silver on the back. They were very good.' "'Yes, sire. Here we have bronze, sire.' "'Do I really have to wear this gold mask?' The face of the sun, sire, handed down through all the ages. Yes, sire, on all public occasions, sire. Tepic peered out through the eye slots. It was certainly a handsome face. It smiled faintly. He remembered his father visiting the nursery one day and forgetting to take it off. Tepic had screamed the place down. It's rather heavy. It is weighed with the centuries said Dios, and passed over the obsidian reaping-hook of justice. "'Have you been a priest long, Dios?' "'Many years, sire, man and eunuch. Now, father said you were high priest even in Grandad's time. You must be very old.' "'Well preserved, sir. The gods have been kind to me.' said Dios in the face of the evidence. "'And now, sire, if we could just hold this as well—' What is it? The honeycomb of increase, sire. Very important. Tepic juggled it into position. I expect you've seen a lot of changes, he said politely. A look of pain passed over the old priest's face, but quickly, as if it was in a hurry to get away. No, sire, he said smoothly. I have been very fortunate. Oh, what's this? The sheaf of plenty, sire. Extremely significant, very symbolic. If you could just tuck it under my arm, then. Have you ever heard of plumbing, Dios? The priest snapped his fingers at one of the attendants. No, sire, he said, and leaned forward. This is the asp of wisdom. I'll just tuck it in here, shall I? It's like buckets, but not as, um, smelly. Sounds dreadful, sire. The smell keeps bad influences away, I have always understood. This, sire, is the gourd of the waters of the heavens. If we could just raise our chin. This is all necessary, is it? said Tepic indistinctly. It is traditional, sire. If we could just rearrange things a little, sire, here is the three-pronged spear of the waters of the earth. I think we will be able to get this finger round it. We shall have to see about our marriage, sire. I'm not sure we would be compatible, Dios. The high priest smiled with his mouth. <laughs> sire is pleased to jest, sire, he said urbanely. However, it is essential that you marry. I am afraid all the girls I know are in Ankh-Morpork, said Tepic airily, knowing in his heart that this broad statement referred to Mrs. Collar, who had been his bedder in the sixth form, and one of the serving wenches who'd taken a shine to him and always gave him extra gravy. But, and his blood pounded at the memory, there had been the annual Assassin's Ball, and because the young assassins were trained to move freely in society and were expected to dance well, and because well-cut black silk and attracted a certain type of older woman... They'd whirled the night away through Bourbons, Galliards, and slow-stepping Pavanines until the air thickened with musk and hunger. Chidder, whose simple open face and easy-going manner were a winner every time, came back to bed very late for days afterwards, and tended to fall asleep during lessons. "'Quite unsuitable, sire. We would require a consort well-versed in the observances. Of course, our aunt is available, sire.' There was a clatter. Dios sighed and motioned the attendants to pick things up. If we could just begin again, sire, this is the cabbage of vegetative increase. Sorry, said Tepic, 
I didn't hear you say I should marry my aunt, did I? You did, sire. Interfamilial marriage is a proud tradition of our lineage, said Dios. But my aunt is my aunt. Dios rolled his eyes. He'd advised the late king repeatedly about the education of his son, but the man was stubborn, stubborn. Now he'd have to do it on the fly. The gods were testing him, he decided. It took decades to make a monarch, and he had weeks to do it in. Yes, sire, he said patiently. Of course, and she is also your uncle, your cousin, and your father. Uh, hold on. My father? The priest raised his hand soothingly. A technicality, he said. Your great-great-grandmother once declared she is king as a matter of political expediency, and I don't believe the edict is ever rescinded. But she was a woman, though. Dios looked shocked. Oh, no, sire. She is a man. She herself declared this. But look, a chap's aunt... Quite so, sire. I quite understand. Well, thank you, said Tepic. It is a great shame that we have no sisters. Sisters? It do to water the divine blood, sire. The sun might not like it. Now this, sire, is the scapula of hygiene. Where would you like it put? King Tepikaimon the 27th was watching himself being stuffed. It was just as well he didn't feel hunger these days. Certainly he would never want to eat chicken again. Very nice stitching there, master. Just keep your finger still, Gurn. My mother does stitching like that. She's got a pinny with stitching like that, as our mum, said Gurn, conversationally. Keep it still, I said. It's got all ducks and hens on it. Gurn supplied helpfully. Dill concentrated on the job in hand. It was good workmanship, he was prepared to admit. The Guild of Embalmers and Allied Trades had awarded him medals for it. It must make you feel really proud, said Gurn. What? Well, our mam says the king goes on living sort of thing, after all this stuffing and stitching, sort of in the netherworld, with your stitching in him and several sacks of straw and a couple of buckets of pitch, thought the shade of the king, sadly, and the wrapping off Gurn's lunch, although he didn't blame the lad, who'd just forgotten where he put it. All eternity with someone's lunch wrapping as part of your vital organs. There had been half a sausage left, too. He'd become quite attached to Dill, and even to Gurn. He seemed still to be attached to his body, too. At least he felt uncomfortable if he wandered more than a few hundred yards away from it. And so in the course of the last couple of days he'd learned quite a lot about them. Funny, really, he'd spent the whole of his life in the kingdom talking to a few priests and so forth. He knew objectively there had been other people around, servants and gardeners and so forth, but they figured in his life as blobs. He was at the top, and then his family, and then the priests, and the nobles, of course, and then there were the blobs. Damn fine blobs, of course, some of the finest blobs in the world, as loyal as a collection of blobs as a king might hope to rule, but blobs nonetheless. Now he was absolutely engrossed in the daily details of Dill's shy hopes for advancement within the guild and the unfolding story of Gurn's clumsy overtures to Gluenda, the garlic farmer's daughter who lived nearby. He listened in fascinated astonishment to the elaboration of a world as full of subtle distinctions of grade and station as the one he had so recently left. It was terrible to think that he might never know if Gurn overcame her father's objections and won his intended, or if Dill's work on this job, on him, would allow him to aspire to the rank of exalted grand ninety-degree variants of the Natron Lodge of the Guild of Embalmers and Allied Trades. It was as if death was some astonishing optical device which turned even a drop of water into a complex hive of life. He found an overpowering urge to counsel Dill on elementary politics, or apprise Gurn of the benefit of washing and looking respectable. He tried it several times. They could sense him, there was no doubt about that, but they just put it down to draughts. 
Now he watched Dill pad over to the big table of bandages and come back with a thick swatch, which he held reflectively against what even the king was now prepared to think of as his corpse. I think the linen, he said at last. It's definitely his colour. Gern put his head on one side. It looked good in the Hessian, he said. Or maybe the calico. Not the calico. Definitely not the calico. On him it's too big. He could mould her into it with where, you know. Dill snorted. Where? Where? You shouldn't talk to me about calico and where. What happens if someone robs the tomb in a thousand years' time and him in calico, I'd like to know? He'd lurch halfway down the corridor, maybe throttle one of them, I grant you, but then he's coming undone, right? The elbows will be out in no time. I'd never live it down. But you'll be dead, master. Dead? What's that got to do with it? Dill riffled through the samples. No, it'll be the Essian. Got plenty of giving it, Essian. Good traction, too. He'll really be able to lurch up speed in the passages if ever he needs to. The king sighed. He'd have preferred something lightweight in taffeta. And go on, shut the door, Dill added. It's getting breezy in here. And now it's time, said the high priest, for us to see our late father. He allowed himself a quiet smile. I am sure he is looking forward to it, he added. Tepic considered this. It wasn't something he was looking forward to, but at least it would get everyone's mind off him marrying relatives. He reached down in what he hoped was a kingly fashion to stroke one of the palace cats. This also was not a good move. The creature sniffed it, went cross-eyed with the effort of thought, and then bit his fingers. Cats are sacred, said Dios, shocked at the words Tepic uttered. Long-legged cats with silver fur and disdainful expressions are, maybe, said Tepic, nursing his hands. I don't know about this sort. I'm sure sacred cats don't leave dead ibises under the bed, and I'm certain that sacred cats that live surrounded by endless sand don't come indoors and do it in the king's sandals, Dios. All cats are cats, said Dios vaguely, and added, if we would be so gracious as to follow us. He motioned Tepic towards a distant arch. Tepic followed slowly. He'd been back home for what seemed like ages, and it still didn't feel right. The air was too dry, the clothes felt wrong, it was too hot. Even the buildings seemed wrong, the pillars for one thing. Back home, back at the guild, pillars things with little bunches of stone grapes and things round the top. Here they were massive pear-shaped lumps, where all the stone had run to the bottom. Half a dozen servants trailed behind him, carrying the various items of regalia. He tried to imitate Dios's walk and found the movements coming back to him. You turned your torso this way, then you turned your head this way and extended your arms at 45 degrees to your body with the palms down and then you attempted to move. The high priest's staff raised echoes as it touched the flagstones. A blind man could have walked barefoot through the palace by tracing the time-worn dimples it had created over the years. I am afraid that we will find that our father has changed somewhat since we last saw him, said Dios conversationally as they undulated by the fresco of Queen Kafut, accepting tribute from the kingdoms of the world. Well, yes, said Tepic, bewildered by the tone. He's dead, isn't he? There's that too, said Dios, and Tepic realized that he hadn't been referring to something as trivial as the king's current physical condition. He was lost in a horrified admiration. It wasn't that Dios was particularly cruel or uncaring. It was simply that death was a mere irritating transition in the eternal business of existence. The fact that people died was just an inconvenience, like them being out when you called. It's a strange world, he thought. It's all busy shadows, and it never changes. And I'm part of it. Who's he? he said, pointing to a particularly big fresco showing a tall man with a hat like a chimney and a beard like a rope riding a chariot over a lot of other much smaller people. His name is in the cartouche below, said Dios primly. What? The small oval, sire, 
said Dios. Tepic peered closely at the dense hieroglyphics. Thin eagle, eye, wiggly line, man with stick, bird sitting down, wiggly line, he read. Dios winced. I believe we must apply ourselves more to the study of modern languages, he said, recovering a bit. His name is Ptah Kaaba. He is king when the Dajel Empire extends from the Circle Sea to the Rim Ocean, when almost half the continent pays tribute to us. Tepic realized what it was about the man's speech that was strange. Dios would bend any sentence to breaking point if it meant avoiding a past tense. He pointed to another fresco. And her, he said, she is Queen Khat Leon Rapta, said Dios. She wins the kingdom of Hawandaland by stealth. This is the time of the Second Empire. But she is dead, said Tepic. I understand so, said the high priest, after the slightest of pauses. Yes, the past tense definitely bothered Dios. I have learned seven languages, said Tepic, secure in the knowledge that the actual marks he had achieved in three of them would remain concealed in the ledgers of the guild. Indeed, sire. Oh, yes, Morporkian, Vangelmesht, Ephib, Laotation, and uh, several others, said Tepic. Ah, Dios nodded, smiled, and continued to proceed down the corridor, limping slightly but still measuring his pace like the ticking of centuries. The Barbarian Lands. Tebic looked at his father. The embalmers had done a good job. They were waiting for him to tell them so. Part of him, which still lived in Ark Morpork, said, This is a dead body. Wrapped up in bandages, surely they can't think that this will help him get better. In Ankh, you die, and they bury you or burn you, or throw you to the ravens. Here, it just means you slow down a bit and get given all the best food. It's ridiculous. How can you run a kingdom like this? They seem to think that being dead is like being deaf. You just have to speak up a bit. But a second, older voice said, We've run a kingdom like this for 7,000 years. The humblest melon farmer has a lineage that makes kings elsewhere look like mayflies. We used to own the continent before we sold it again to pay for pyramids. We don't even think about other countries less than 3,000 years old. It all seems to work. Hello, father, he said. The shade of Tepi Kaimon the 27th, which had been watching him closely, hurried across the room. "'You're looking well,' he said. "'Good to see you. Look, this is urgent. Please pay attention. It's about death.' "'He says he is pleased to see you,' said Dios. "'You can hear him,' said Tepic. "'I didn't hear anything. "'The dead naturally speak through the priests,' said the priest. "'That is the custom, sire.' "'But—' He can hear me, can he? Of course. I've been thinking about this whole pyramid business, and look, I'm not certain about it. Tepic leaned closer. Auntie sends her love, he said loudly. He thought about this. That's my aunt, not yours. I hope, he added. I say, I say, can you hear me? He bids you greetings from the world beyond the veil, said Dios. Well, yes, I, I suppose I do, but look, I don't want you to go to a lot of trouble and build a... We are going to build you a marvellous pyramid, father. You'll really like it there. There'll be people to look after you and everything. Tepic glanced at Dios for reassurance. He'll like that, won't he? I don't want one, screamed the king. There's a whole interesting eternity I haven't seen yet. I forbid you to put me in a pyramid. He says that is very proper, and you are a dutiful son, said Dios. 
Can you see me? How many fingers am I holding up? Think it's fun, do you, spending the rest of your death under a million tons of rock watching yourself crumble to bits? Is that your idea of a good epoch? It's rather drafty in here, sire, said Dios. Perhaps we should get on. Anyway, you can't possibly afford it. And we'll put your favourite frescoes and statues in with you. You'll like that, won't you? said Tepic desperately. All your bits and pieces around you. He will like it, won't he? he asked Dios as they walked back to the throne room. Only, I don't know, I somehow got a feeling he isn't too happy about it. I assure you, sire, said Dios, he can have no other desire. Back in the embalming room, King Tepikaimon Twenty-Seventh tried to tap Gurn on the shoulder, which had no effect. He gave up and sat down beside himself. Don't do it, lad, he said bitterly. Never have descendants. And then there was the Great Pyramid itself. Tepic's footsteps echoed on the marble tiles as he walked around the model. He wasn't sure what one was supposed to do here, but kings, he suspected, were often put in that position. There was always the good old fallback, which was known as taking an interest. Well, well, he said, how long have you been designing pyramids? Putterclasp, architect and jobbing pyramid builder to the nobility, bowed deeply. All my life, O oh light of noonday. It must be fascinating, said Tepic. Petaclasp looked sidelong at the high priest, who nodded. It has its points, O oh fount of waters, he ventured. He wasn't used to kings talking to him as though he was a human being. He felt obscurely that it wasn't right. Tepic waved a hand at the model on its podium. Yes, he said uncertainly. Well, good. Uh, four walls, mm? and a pointy top. Jolly good. First class. <laughs> Says it all, really. There still seemed to be too much silence around. He plunged on. Good show, he said. I mean, there's no doubt about it. This is uh, uh, a pyramid. And what a pyramid it is, indeed. This still didn't seem enough. He sought for something else. People will look at it in centuries to come and they'll say, uh, they'll say, that is a pyramid. Hmm. He coughed. The walls slope nicely, he croaked. But, he said, two pairs of eyes swiveled towards his. Mm, he said. Dios raised an eyebrow. Sire, I seem to remember once my father said that, you know, uh, when he died, he'd quite like to, uh, sort of thing, uh, be buried at sea. There wasn't the choke of outrage he had expected. He meant the delta. It's very soft ground by the delta, said Pataclusp. It'd take months to get decent footings in. Then there's your risk of sinking, and the damp. It's not good damp inside a pyramid. No, said Tepic, sweating under Dios's gaze. I think what he meant was, you know, in the sea. Pataclusp's brow furrowed. Ooh, tricky that, he said thoughtfully. Interesting idea. I suppose one could build a small one, a million tonner, and float it out on pontoons or something. No, said Tepic, trying not to laugh. I think what he meant was buried without... Tepic Haimon the 27th means that he would want to be buried without delay said Dios, his voice like greased silk. And there is no doubt that he would require to honour the very best you can build, architect. No, I'm sure you've got it wrong, said Tepic. Dios's face froze. Pataclusps slid into the waxen expression of someone with whom it is suddenly nothing to do. He started to stare at the floor as if his very survival depended on his memorising it in extreme detail. "'Wrong?' said Dios. "'No offence. I'm sure you mean well,' said Tepic. "'It's just that, well, he seemed very clear about it at the time, and—' "'I mean, well,' said Dios, tasting each word as though it was a sour grape. 
Pataclusp coughed. He had finished with the floor. Now he started on the ceiling. Dios took a deep breath. Sire, he said, we have always been pyramid builders. All our kings are buried in pyramids. It is how we do things, sire. It is how things are done. Yes, but it does not admit of dispute, said Dios. Who could wish for anything else, sealed with all artifice against the desecrations of time? Now the oiled silk of his voice became armor, hard as steel, scornful as spears, shielded for all time against the insults of change. Tepic glanced down at the high priest's knuckles. They were white, the bone pressing through the flesh as though in a rage to escape. His gaze slid up the grey-clad arm to Dios's face. Ye gods, he thought it's really true, he does look like they got tired of waiting for him to die and pickled him anyway. Then his eyes met those of the priest, more or less with a clang. He felt as though his flesh was being very slowly blown off his bones. He felt that he was no more significant than a mayfly. A necessary mayfly, certainly, a mayfly who would be accorded all due respect, but still an insect with all the rights thereof, and as much free will in the fury of that gaze as a scrap of papyrus in a hurricane. The king's will is that he be interred in a pyramid, said Dios, in the tone of voice the creator must have used to sketch out the moon and stars. Um, said Tepic. The finest of pyramids for the king, said Dios. Tepic gave up. Oh, he said. Good, uh, fine, yes. Mm, the very best, of course. Pataclusp beamed with relief, produced his wax tablet with a flourish, and took a stylus from the recesses of his wig. The important thing, he knew, was to clinch the deal as soon as possible. Let things slip in a situation like this, and a man could find himself with one million five hundred thousand tons of bespoke limestone on his hands. Then that will be the standard model, shall we say, O water in the desert? Tepic looked at Dios, who was standing and glaring at nothing now, staring the bulldogs of entropy into submission by willpower alone. I think something larger, he ventured hopelessly. "'That's the executive,' said Pataclusp. "'Very exclusive, O base of the Eternal Column. "'Last you a perpetuality. "'Also our special offer this eon "'is various measurements of paracosmic significance "'built into the very fabric at no extra cost.' "'He gave Tepic an expectant look. "'Yes, yes, that will be fine,' said Tepic. "'Dios took a deep breath.' "'The king requires far more than that,' he said. "'I do?' said Tepic, doubtfully. "'Indeed, sire, it is your express wish "'that the greatest of monuments is erected for your father,' said Dios smoothly. "'This was a contest, Tepic knew, "'and he didn't know the rules or how to play, and he was going to lose. "'It is? Oh, yes. Uh, "'Yes, I suppose it is, really. Yes.' "'A pyramid unequalled along the Dajel,' said Dios. "'That is the command of the king. It is only right and proper.' "'Yes, yes, something like that. Um, "'Twice the normal size,' said Tepic desperately, "'and had the brief satisfaction of seeing Dios look momentarily disconcerted. "'Sire?' he said. "'It is only right and proper,' said Tepic. Dios opened his mouth to protest, and saw Tepic's expression, and shut it again. Pataclusp scribbled busily, his Adam's apple bobbing. Something like this only happened once in a business career. "'Can do you a very nice black marble facing on the outside,' he said, without looking up. "'We may have just enough in the quarry, O King of the Celestial Orbs,' he added hurriedly. "'Very good,' said Tepic. Pataclus picked up a fresh tablet. Shall we say the capstone picked out in Electrum? It's cheaper to have it built in right from the start. You don't want to use just silver and then say later, I wish I'd had it. Electrum, yes. And the usual offices? What? 
The burial chamber, that is, and the outer chamber. Oh, I'd recommend the Memphis. Very select. That comes with a matching extra-large treasure room. So handy for all those little things one cannot bear to leave behind. Pataclusp turned the tablet over and started on the other side. And, of course, a similar suite for the Queen, I take it. O King, who shall live forever. Eh? Oh, yes, yes, I suppose so, said Tepic, glancing at Dios. Everything, you know. Then there's the mazes, said Pataclusp, trying to keep his voice steady. Very popular this era. Very important, your maze. It's no good deciding you ought to have put a maze in after the robbers have been. <laughs> Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I'd go for the labris every time. Like we say, they may get in all right, but they'll never get out. It costs that little bit extra, but what's money at a time like this? Oh, master of the waters. Something we don't have, said a warning voice in the back of Tepic's head. He ignored it. He was in the grip of destiny. Yes, he said, straightening up. The Labris. Mm, two of them. Pataclusp's stylus went through his tablet. Uh, his and hers. Oh, stone of stones, he croaked. Very handy, very convenient. With selection of traps from stock... We can offer deadfalls, pitfalls, sliders, rolling balls, dropping spears, arrows. Yes, yes, said Tepic. We'll have them. We'll have them all. All of them. The architect took a deep breath. And of course you'll require all the usual steels, avenues, <laughs> ceremonial sphinxes, he began. Lots, said Tepic. We leave it entirely up to you. Pataclusp mopped his brow. Fine, he said. Marvellous. He blew his nose. Your father, if I may make so bold, O sower of the seed, is extremely fortunate in having such a dutiful son. I, I may add, you may go, said Dios, and we will expect work to start imminently. Without delay, I assure you, said Pataclusp. Um, he seemed to be wrestling with some huge philosophical problem. Yes, said Dios coldly. It's, um, there's the matter of, uh, which is not to say, of course, uh, oldest client, a valued customer, but the uh, fact is that, uh, um, uh, absolutely no doubt about credit's worthiness. <laughs> Would not wish to suggest in any way whatsoever that... <clears throat> Dios gave him a stare that would have caused a sphinx to blink and look away. You wish to say something, he said. His Majesty's time is extremely limited. Pataclusp worked his jaw silently, but the result was a foregone conclusion. Even gods had been reduced to sheepish mumbling in the face of Dios's face. And the carved snakes on his staff seemed to be watching him too. Uh, no, no, sorry, I was just <laughs> thinking aloud. I'll depart then, shall I? Such a lot of work to be done. <sighs> he bowed low. He was halfway to the archway before Dios added, Completion in three months, in time for inundation. Like many river valley cultures, the kingdom has no truck with such trivia as summer, springtime and winter, and bases its calendar squarely on the great heartbeat of the Dijel. Hence the three seasons, seed time, inundation and sog. This is logical, straightforward and practical, and only disapproved of by barbershop quartets. Because you feel an idiot singing in the good old inundation, that's why. What? You are talking to the 1,398th monarch, said Dios icily. Pataclusp swallowed. Oh, I'm sorry, he whispered. I mean, what, O oh, great king? I mean, block haulage alone will take... <sighs> the architect's lips trembled as he tried out various comments and in his imagination ran them full tilt into Dios's stare. To sort wasn't built in a day, he mumbled. "'We do not believe we laid the specifications for that job,' said Dios. "'He gave Pataclusp a smile. "'In some ways it was worse than everything else. "'We will, of course,' he said, "'pay extra.' 
But you never per... <clears throat> Patroclus began and then sagged. The penalties for not completing on time will, of course, be terrible, said Dios, the usual clause. Patroclus hadn't the nerve left to argue. Of course, he said, utterly defeated. It is an honour. Will your eminences excuse me? <laughs> there are still some hours of daylight left. Tepic nodded. Thank you, said the architect. May your loins be truly fruitful. Saving your presence, Lord Dios. They heard him running down the steps outside. It will be magnificent. Too big, but magnificent said Dios. He looked out between the pillars at the necropolic panorama on the far bank of the gel. Magnificent, he repeated. He winced once more at the stab of pain in his leg. Ah, he'd have to cross the river again tonight, no doubt of it. He'd been foolish putting it off for days, but it would be unthinkable not to be in a position to serve the kingdom properly. Something wrong, Dios, said Tepic. Sire, you looked a bit pale, I thought. A look of panic flickered over Dios's wrinkled features. He pulled himself upright. I assure you, sire, I am in the best of health. The best of health, sire. You don't think you've been overdoing it, do you? This time there was no mistaking the expression of terror. Overdoing what, sire? You're always bustling, Dios. First one up, last one to bed. You should take it easy. I exist only to serve, sire, said Dios firmly. I exist only to serve. Tepic joined him on the balcony. The early evening sun glowed on a man-made mountain range. This was only the central massif. The pyramids stretched from the delta all the way up to the second cataract, where the Dajel disappeared into the mountains, and the pyramids occupied the best land near the river. Even the farmers would have considered it sacrilegious to suggest anything different. Some of the pyramids were small, and made of rough-hewn blocks that contrived to look far older than the mountains that fenced the valley from the high desert. After all, mountains had always been there. Words like young and old didn't apply to them. But those first pyramids had been built by human beings, little bags of thinking water held up briefly by fragile accumulations of calcium, who had cut rocks into pieces and then painfully put them back together again in a better shape. They were old. Over the millennia the fashions had fluctuated. Later pyramids were smooth and sharp, or flattened and tiled with mica. Even the steepest of them, Tepic mused, wouldn't rate more than one zero on any edificier's scale, although some of the stelae and temples which flocked around the base of the pyramids like tugboats around the dreadnoughts of eternity could be worthy of attention. Dreadnoughts of eternity, he thought, sailing ponderously through the mists of time with every passenger travelling first class. A few stars had been let out early. Tepic looked up at them. Perhaps he thought there is life somewhere else, on the stars maybe. If it's true that there are billions of universes stacked alongside one another, the thickness of a thought apart, then there must be people elsewhere. But wherever they are, no matter how mightily they try, no matter how magnificent the effort, they surely can't manage to be as god-awfully stupid as us. I mean, we work at it. We were given a spark of it to start with, but over hundreds of thousands of years we've really improved on it. He turned to Dios, feeling that he ought to repair a little bit of the damage. "'You can feel the age radiating off them, can't you?' he said conversationally. "'Pardon, sire?' "'The pyramids, Dios. They're so old.' Dios glanced vaguely across the river. "'Are they?' he said. "'Yes, I suppose they are.' "'Will you get one?' said Tepic. "'A pyramid?' said Dios. "'Sire!' I have one already. It pleased one of your forebears to make provision for me. That must have been a great honour, said Tepic. Dios nodded graciously. The staterooms of Forever were usually reserved for royalty. It is, of course, very small, very plain, but it will suffice for my simple needs. Will it, said Tepic, yawning. That's nice. And now, if you don't mind, I think I'll turn in. It's been a long day. Dios bowed as though he was hinged in the middle. 
Tepic had noticed that Diost had at least fifty finely tuned ways of bowing, each one conveying subtle shades of meaning. This one looked like a number three. I am your humble servant. And a very good day it was too, if I may say so, sire. Tepic was lost for words. You thought so? he said. The cloud effects at dawn were particularly effective. They were? Oh. Do I have to do anything about the sunset? Your majesty is pleased to joke, said Dios. Sunsets happen by themselves, sire. <laughs> Echoed Tepic. Dios cracked his knuckles. The trick is in the sunrise, he said. The crumbling scrolls of Connaught said that the great orange sun was eaten every evening by the sky goddess Huat, who saved one pip in time to grow a fresh sun for the next morning. And Dios knew that this was so. The book of Staying in the Pit said that the sun was the eye of Ye, toiling across the sky each day in his endless search for his toenails, literally Dahar Ret Kar Mon, or Clipping of the Foot. But some scholars say that it should be Dar Rahet Kare Mhun, literally Hot Air Paint Stripper. And Dios knew that this was so. The secret rituals of the smoking mirror held that the sun was in fact a round hole in the spinning blue soap bubble of the goddess Nesh, opening into the fiery real world beyond, and the stars were the holes that the rain comes through. And Dios knew that this also was so. Folk myth said the sun was a boil of fire which circled the world every day, and that the world itself was carried through the everlasting void on the back of an enormous turtle. And Dios also knew that this was so, although it gave him a bit of trouble. And Dios knew that Net was the supreme god, and that Fon was the supreme god, and so were Hast, Set, Bin, Sot, Io, Dehek, and Ptui. That Herpetine Triskeles alone ruled the world of the dead, and so did Syncope and Silur, the catfish-headed god, and Orexis Nupt. Dios was maximum high priest to a national religion that had fermented and accreted and bubbled for more than 7,000 years, and never threw a god away in case it turned out to be useful. He knew that a great many mutually contradictory things were all true. If they were not, then ritual and belief were as nothing, and if they were nothing, then the world did not exist. As a result of this sort of thinking, the priests of the Dejel could give mind room to a collection of ideas that would make even a quantum mechanic give in and hand back his toolbox. Dios's staff knocked echoes from the stones as he limped alone into the darkness down little frequented passages until he emerged on a small jetty. Untying the boat there, the high priest climbed in with difficulty, unshipped the oars and pushed himself out into the turbid waters of the dark Dejel. His hands and feet felt too cold. Foolish. Foolish. He should have done this before. The boat jerked slowly into midstream as full night rolled over the valley. On the far bank, in response to the ancient laws, the pyramids started to light the sky. Lights also burned late in the house of Pataclusp associates, necropolitan builders to the dynasties. The father and his twin sons were hunched over the huge wax designing tray, arguing. "'It's not as if they ever pay,' said Pataclusp the second A. "'I mean, it's not just a case of not being able to. They don't seem to have grasped the idea. At least dynasties like to sort pay up within a hundred years or so. Why didn't you—' "'We've built pyramids along the gel for the last three thousand years,' said his father stiffly, "'and we haven't lost by it, have we? No, we haven't, because the other kingdoms look to the gel, "'and they say there's a family that really knows its pyramids. "'Connoisseurs, they say. We'll have what they're having, if you please, with knobs on. "'Anyway, they're real royalty,' he added. "'Not like some of the ones you get these days. "'Here today, gone next millennium. "'They're half gods, too.' You don't expect real royalty to pay its way. That's one of the signs of real royalty. Not having any money. You don't get more royal than them, then. You'd need a new word, said 2A. We're nearly royal in that case. You don't understand business, my son. You think it's all bookkeeping. Well, it isn't. It's a question of, of mass and the power to weight ratio. 
They both glared at Pataclasp the second B, who was sitting staring at the sketches. He was turning his stylus over and over in his hands, which were trembling with barely suppressed excitement. Uh, we, we, we'll have to use granite for the lower slopes, he said, talking to himself. The limestone wouldn't take it, not with all the power flows, which will be, whew, they'll be big. I mean, we're not talking razor blades here. This thing could put an edge on a rolling pin. Pataclusp rolled his eyes. He was only one generation into a dynasty, and already it was trouble. One son a born accountant, the other in love with this newfangled cosmic engineering. There hadn't been any such thing when he was a lad. There was just architecture. You drew the plans and then got in ten thousand lads on time and a half, and double bubble at weekends. They just had to pile the stuff up. You didn't have to be cosmic about it. Descendants. The gods had seen fit to give him one son who charged you for the amount of breath expended in saying good morning, and another one who worshipped geometry and stayed up all night designing aqueducts. You scrimped and saved to send them to the best schools, and then they went and paid you back by getting educated. What are you talking about? he snapped. The, the discharge alone, Tooby pulled his abacus towards him and rattled the pottery beads along the wires. Let's say we're talking twice the height of the executive model, which gives us a mass of... Uh, plus additional coded dimensions of occult significance as per spec. Uh, we couldn't do this sort of thing even a hundred years ago, he realised. Not with the primitive techniques we had then. His finger became a blur. 2A gave a snort and grabbed his own abacus. Limestone at two talents the ton, he said. Wear and tear on tools, masonry charges, demurrage, breakages. Oh dear, oh dear. On cost, black marble at replacement prices. Pataclasp sighed. Two abacai rattling in tandem the whole day long, one changing the shape of the world and the other one deploring the cost. Whatever happened to the two bits of wood and a plumb line? The last beads clicked against the stops. It'll be a whole quantum leap in pyramidology, said Tooby, sitting back with a messianic grin on his face. It'll be a whole qua... Two A began. Quantum, said Tooby, savouring the word. It'll be a whole quantum leap in bankruptcy, said Two A. They'd have to invent a new word for that too. <laughs> It'd be worth it as a lost leader, said 2B. Sure enough, when it comes to making a loss, we'll be in the lead, said 2A sourly. It'd it practically glow. In millennia to come, people will look at it and say, that pataclusp, he knew his pyramids all right. They'll call it pataclusp's folly, you mean? By now, the brothers were both standing up, their noses a few inches apart. The trouble with you, sibling, is that you know you know the cost of everything and the value of nothing. The trouble with you is is that you don't. Mankind must strive ever upwards. Yes, on a sound financial footing by Cuft. The search for knowledge. The search for probity. Pataclasp left them to it and stood staring out at the yard where, under the glow of torches, the staff were doing a feverish stock-taking. It had been a small business when Father passed it on to him, just a yard full of blocks and various sphinxes, needles, steels and other stock items, and a thick stack of unpaid bills, most of them addressed to the palace and respectfully pointing out that our esteemed account, presented 900 years ago, appeared to have been overlooked and prompt settlement would oblige, but it had been fun in those days. There was just him, five thousand labourers, and Mrs. Pataclasp doing the books. You had to do pyramids, Dad said. All the profit was in mastabas, small family tombs, memorial needles, and general jobbing necropoly. But if you didn't do pyramids, you didn't do anything. The meanest garlic farmer, looking for something neat and long-lasting, with maybe some green marble chippings but within a budget, wouldn't go to a man without a pyramid to his name. So he'd done pyramids, and they'd been good ones. Not like some you saw these days with the wrong number of sides and walls you could put your foot through. And yes, somehow they'd gone from strength to strength. To build the biggest pyramid ever. 
in three months, with terrible penalties if it wasn't done on time. Dios hadn't specified how terrible, but Pataclusp knew his man, and they probably involved crocodiles. They'd be pretty terrible, all right. He stared at the flickering light on the long avenues of statues, including the one of Bloody Hat, the vulture-headed god of unexpected guests, bought on the off-chance years ago and turned down by the client owing to not being up to snuff in the beak department and unshiftable ever since, even at a discount. The biggest pyramid ever. And after you'd knocked your pipes out, seeing to it that the nobility had their tickets to eternity, were you allowed to turn your expertise homeward, i.e. a bijou pyramidette for self and Mrs. Pataclasp, to ensure safe delivery into the netherworld? Of course not. Even Dad had only been allowed to have a mastaba, even though it was one of the best on the river, he had to admit. That red-veined marble had been ordered all the way from her wonderland. A lot of people had asked for the same. It had been good for business. But that's how Dad would have liked it. The biggest pyramid ever. And they'd never remember who was under it. It didn't matter if they called it Pataclusp's Folly or Pataclusp's Glory. They'd call it Pataclusp's. He surfaced from this pool of thought to hear his son still arguing. If this was his posterity, he'd take his chances with 600-ton limestone blocks. At least they were quiet. Shut up, the pair of you, he said. They stopped and sat down grumbling. I've made up my mind, he said. 2B doodled fitfully with his stylus. 2A strummed his abacus. We're going to do it said Pataclusp, and strode out of the room, and any son who doesn't like it will be cast into the outer darkness where there is a wailing and a crashing of teeth, he called over his shoulder. The two brothers, left to themselves, glowered at each other. At last, 2A said, What does quantum mean, anyway? 2B shrugged. It means add another naught, he said. Oh, said 2A, is that all? All along the river valley of the Dajel, the pyramids were flaring silently into the night, discharging the accumulated power of the day. Great soundless flames erupted from their capstones and danced upwards, jagged as lightning, cold as ice. For hundreds of miles the desert glittered with the constellations of the dead, the aurora of antiquity. But along the valley of the Dajel, the lights ran together in one solid ribbon of fire. It was on the floor, and it had a pillow at one end. It had to be a bed. Tepic found he was doubting it as he tossed and turned, trying to find some part of the mattress that was prepared to meet him halfway. This is stupid, he thought. I grew up on beds like this, and pillows carved out of rock. I was born in this palace. This is my heritage. I must be prepared to accept it. I must order a proper bed and a feather pillow from Ankh first thing in the morning. I, the king, have said this shall be done. He turned over, his head hitting the pillow with a thud. And plumbing. What a great idea that was. It was amazing what you could do with a hole in the ground. Yes, plumbing. And bloody doors. Tepic definitely wasn't used to having several attendants waiting on his will all the time, so performing his ablutions before bed had been extremely embarrassing. And the people, too. He was definitely going to get to know the people... It was wrong, all this skulking around in palaces. And how was a fellow supposed to sleep with the sky over the river glowing like a firework? Eventually, sheer exhaustion wrestled his body into some zone between sleeping and waking, and mad images stalked across his eyeballs. There was the shame of his ancestors when future archaeologists translated the as-yet-unpainted frescoes of his reign. Squiggle, constipated eagle, wiggly line, hippo's bottom squiggle. And in the year of the cycle of Sefnet, the sun god Tepic had plumbing installed and scorned the pillows of his forebears. He dreamed of Kuft, huge bearded, speaking in thunder and lightning, calling down the wrath of the heavens on this descendant who was betraying the noble past. Dios floated past his vision, explaining that as a result of an edict passed several thousand years ago, it was essential that he marry a cat. Various headed gods vied for his attention, explaining details of godhood, while in the background a distant voice tried to attract his attention and screamed something about not wanting to be buried under a load of stone. But he had no time to concentrate on this, because he saw seven fat cows and seven thin cows, one of them playing a trombone. 
but that was an old dream. He dreamt that one nearly every night. And then there was a man firing arrows at a tortoise. And then he was walking over the desert and found a tiny pyramid only a few inches high. A wind sprang up and blew away the sand, only now it wasn't a wind. It was the pyramid rising, sand tumbling down its gleaming sides. And it grew bigger and bigger, bigger than the world, so that at last the pyramid was so big that the whole world was a speck in the centre. And in the centre of the pyramid something very strange happened. And the pyramid grew smaller, taking the world with it, and vanished. Of course, when you're a pharaoh, you get a very high class of obscure dream. Another day dawned, courtesy of the king, who was curled up on the bed and using his rolled-up clothes as a pillow. Around the stone maze of the palace the servants of the kingdom began to wake up. Dios's boat slid gently through the water and bumped into the jetty. Dios climbed out and hurried into the palace, bounding up the steps, three at a time, and rubbing his hands together at the thought of a fresh day laid out before him, every hour and ritual ticking neatly into place, so much to organise, so much to be needed for. End of CD 3